What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, Honor Cargill Martin, the author, classicist, and art historian, discusses her new book, Messalina, a story of empire, slander, and adultery. Joining Honor to explore this topic is our host today, Dan Jones, one of Britain's best known historians. The two spoke for us in a live online event on the 5th of June, 2023. Here's Dan with more. Well, thank you very much, Connor. Um, Hello, everybody, and welcome to Intelligence Squared Plus with me, Dan Jones. Um, It's uh, my pleasure and indeed a great privilege to introduce our guest today, Honor Cargill-Martin. Honor's a classicist and an art historian. This is going to take a while because she's got a a very long CV already. Uh, She has master's degrees in Greek and Roman history and Italian Renaissance art and is currently studying for a doctorate focusing on political sex scandals in ancient Rome at Christchurch. Oxford. Honor's published a number of children's fiction titles and her debut non-fiction title, which we're going to be discussing the themes of today. It's, I've got a, a rather handsome proof. The real thing, which I implore you to buy, is even better. Messalina, a story of empire slander and adultery. So, Honor, welcome. Thank you very much for, for joining me. No, thank you so much for having me. And congratulations on the publication. This was uh, about a month ago now this came out, am I right? Yeah, it was. It's a beautiful book. It's, um, I've told you this before, I'm going to embarrass you in public now. It is uh, <laughs> one of the most astonishingly accomplished debut works of nonfiction or indeed anything that I've ever read. So congratulations. Um, oh, you've played, you. <laughs> you've played a blinder. Um, I should just say to our audience before I, I, I ask you my first question, uh, please feel free to contribute in the Q&A box and uh, include your name if you want your name to be read out and I will incorporate those questions or we'll have a dedicated section at the end for audience questions. Don't forget to tweet with hashtag IQ2. Um, on a, the name Messalina probably used to mean a bit more to people than it does today. If I went out in the street in the town I live and started shouting Messalina, Messalina, Maybe some some someone would answer, but I don't think most people would would know immediately who I was talking about. C- could you give us a potted history, as you do at the beginning of your brilliant book, of everything we know about Messalina? Uh, yes, um, I can. So Messalina is um, Empress of Rome, uh, and she rules as the wife of the Emperor Claudius um, of I Claudius fame from forty one A.D. to forty eight A.D. 
Um, so this is sort of right at the height of the Julio-Claudian period, Rome's first dynasty that lasts from the end of the civil wars and the rise of Augustus to the death of Claudius's successor, Nero. Um, and so in terms of what we know about Messalina, that's always a bit of a fraught question when we're talking about ancient history and particularly when we're talking about ancient women. Um, we know about Messalina's family. She comes from this very exalted lineage. Um, and But in terms of her as an individual, she really only bursts onto the historical scene in this very dramatic way when her husband, Claudius, accedes to the imperial purple after the assassination of his nephew, Caligula. At this point, Messalina has been married to Claudius for a couple of years. She has a, she's probably in her late teens, early twenties at this point. She has a daughter um, and she is eight months pregnant with a son. Um, over the near decade uh, that follows when Messalina is kind of right at the, at the top of the Roman power tree, we hear an awful lot about her in the sources, um, all of which is really kind of up for debate in terms of its veracity. We hear about her political interventions, her innovations in terms of how core politics is done. We hear about her absolutely ruthless treatment and removal of her political enemies and allegedly her personal enemies as well. We hear about her alleged love affairs and passions and missteps. Um, and eventually we hear about her very dramatic fall at the end of 48 AD. Um, and we know that she did fall from grace in very extreme circumstances and was executed Um at that point, because we can see it in the archaeological record, her statues are smashed um, on decree of the Senate. Her name is chiseled off inscriptions. Um, the reasons for that fall are more difficult to uh, kind of get at. In the sources, it's claimed that she has had this mad passion. She's bigamously married her lover um, and they've plotted to overthrow the emperor. In reality, it's probably more of a sort of court coup. Um, but again, all of that is up for debate. But we do know that she that she dies, is removed from power um, at the end of 48. So those are the bare bones of Messalina's life, uh, her career and her fall. Um, you've alluded to, and this is again something that I think you do brilliantly right up, up front in the book, you've alluded to the sources that we have for her life. Um, you write in the book that this this particular period of Roman history is actually one of the best attested historical periods, yeah. right? Like between mm -hmm. ever and the Renaissance. I mean, this is, yeah. this is a time we know more about. Could you give us a snapshot of some of the sources that you've used, uh, that we use when we're trying to piece together a biography of Messalina? Yeah, so there are three main sort of historical sources. Um, there's Tacitus, his annals. Uh, there is Suetonius, who writes these biographies of the Caesars. And there is Cassius Dio, who writes A History of Rome. Um, Tacitus and Suetonius are writing around the kind of 120s, 120s uh, AD. And Cassius Dio is writing kind of a century later than that. So none of these are direct contemporaries of Messalina. Um, and all of them come with their own problems. I think it's important to remember when we're talking about ancient history that Ancient historians, they, they care about fact, they care about accessing what happened in the past, but they don't draw the same distinction that we would draw today between the idea of kind of writing history as as narrative and as like a partly literary exercise and like academic history. So there is always a sense that um, things are being not necessarily embellished, but that points are being made through literary devices as well as through sort of fact and evidence. Um, in addition to those historical sources, um, all of which come with their own biases and problems, um, there is also a whole slew of literary and archaeological sources, um, as you touched on. So there are 
uh, there's a lot of poetry from this period. There's lots of uh, graffiti in Pompeii. There are lots of inscriptions about what the emperor is doing. There are also lots of statues, coins, cameos. Uh, it's a really rich period in terms of its material and its, its written culture. Are there any sort of typical biases that come with the sources? I mean, I've, I'm asking you that as uh, a medievalist, mostly. Mostly, you know, if, if pretty much whatever period in the Middle Ages one's writing about, the bulk of the narrative sources, at any rate, are created by churchmen, and you kind of know what you're getting into right yeah. from the get-go because uh, they tend to be quite buttoned up uh, and or um, smutty-minded monks. Uh, I mean, is is there a sort of is there a kind of a typical bias in the sources from this period, particularly if you're dealing with the careers of women, powerful women? quote-unquote scandalous women? Yeah, so I think that there are two kind of real key overarching, I suppose, biases that you have to be aware of. Firstly, just the general perception of women and gender uh, in this period. Um, there is just an idea of women in the ancient world. It is just utterly pervasive of women as being intrinsically more passionate, more irrational, more sort of um, dangerous, I suppose, in that they are less self-controlled. Um and that they should thus not legitimately take part in politics. That is just the, the overwhelming kind of perception. Um, there's also, I think, a second bias that we have to be aware of uh, when we're looking at all of these sources. These are all written by sort of aristocratic members of Roman society. Um, and Tacitus and Eugenius both writing in... <sighs> sorry. One of the dynasties that come after the Julio-Claudian dynasty. And so I think that all of these sources are really grappling with the effects of um, Rome's first dynasty and the kind of political changes that they made, this transition from republic to empire um, and from a politics that was run by male aristocrats in the Senate that was really quite open in a lot of ways. Um, it was really centered around uh, public debate, public assemblies, that kind of thing, to a politics that is dynastic that is done very much within the court, within sometimes the family, um, and which is much more kind of behind the scenes and which women are naturally much more involved in, but which is also a source of anxiety, particularly to that sort of male elite writer. So Messalina steps into this world. What do we know? You've, you've alluded to uh, her being from an aristocratic background. What do we know? How much do we know about her parents, her upbringing, where she's from? You know, wh where does she appear from? Uh, so we know about her parents um, and we know about their sort of lineages. They are both um, really from kind of uh, the top of the top of Julio-Claudian society. They are both descended from uh, Augustus's sister and from lots of other kind of key members of that, that Augustan inner circle. Um, so Messalina, in terms of her uh, lineage, is as good as you get. Um, we, in terms of her upbringing, as with almost every other woman in the ancient world, we know almost nothing. Um, and I think it is very reflective of just the general perception of, of women's um, position and sort of purpose um, in this world that we really never hear about um, an ancient woman until the point of her marriage. It's only then that they tend to uh, enter the historical record. Whereas with sort of emperors, we generally hear about omens to do with their birth, how they were as, as a child. Um, with ancient women, we, we never hear about that. And we don't even know, you know, when Messalina was born. Um, 
estimates have ranged over a period of nearly 10 years. Uh, I think it's most likely that she was born around 20 AD because of the years in which kind of her siblings are born and things like that. And when she's married, um, we can then say something about what her upbringing would have been like just because we have a lot of kind of other peripheral evidence from this period. We know that um, elite girls were actually educated very well in this period. Romans were remarkably willing to educate their daughters despite the prejudices that they held against women and their intelligence. <laughs> I'm so sorry, I have terrible hay fever today. Um, and so we know that Messalina would have been given a sort of remarkably wide ranging education. She would have been educated in literature, uh, philosophy, possibly um, elements of rhetoric, history, maybe even uh, maths, uh, things like that. So her education would have been well-rounded. Uh, and then she appears to have been married to Claudius uh, relatively late for an aristocratic girl around 1718, potentially in around 38 AD. There's a really strange, um, maybe the word is dichotomy, maybe the word is paradox. Do I even know the difference? Um, let's find out. <laughs> I do. Uh, <laughs> On the one hand, aristocratic families are prepared to educate their daughters to this extraordinary degree. And from what you're saying, it sounds like to um, to a standard that would have been a fine, fine education in any age of of literate human history. And yet, there's this uh, there's this total sort of um, refusal to contemplate female power. On the one hand, do we ha- do you have any sense of why those two things why 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 the questions why why for god's sake Um, it's it's a really interesting question i think there has always been women have always had played a social role in the roman elite that is much greater than say the role that is played by uh, aristocratic women in classical athens so romans have always brought their wives to dinner parties for example which sounds like nothing to us but to Greek observers, that was seen as a really remarkable thing. Um, And so I think there was always a perception that women had an important role to play in the creation of a certain social and cultural milieu, and that it was important that they were educated in order to do that. Um, There's also the, obviously, the idea that women need to be educated in order to bring up good sons to serve the Republic. Um, And that's something we see even during the Republic, but obviously it becomes even more important under the empire when uh, elements of, it's not straightforward kind of hereditary inheritance of power, but those family ties become increasingly important. The idea of how do you raise a son who you are pretty sure is going to take on control of the empire. Um, And I think the education of women becomes increasingly important in that because people are always aware that they have a huge impact on how the next generation is going to be raised. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This sounds a world away from the society we live in today and in the 21st century West at any rate. But as, as you're speaking, I'm thinking, is this actually just normality for most of human history, that women have been educated but barred from power? And is that only today a, a, a paradox that we're dealing with? I've settled on paradox rather than dichotomy. Yeah, maybe. I, I wonder whether also if you are living in a society that is utterly sure um, well, the majority of your society is utterly sure that men and women are intrinsically different in terms of how their brains work and in terms of what they want out of life, that you're very confident that that difference is, I suppose, like biological rather than than social. I wonder whether you're you're less concerned about that as a as a, a sort of paradox in that you're less concerned that if you educate your women, um, they're going to become dangerous and um, sort of try and and access power. Um, women who try and access power, um, even, even once you're kind of educating a lot of them, the women who do try and access power are, are really seen as unnatural uh, sort of aberrations um, in this period. So, so coming on to... Um the question of, of writing this section of Messalina's biography. It sounds like we can yeah. tell some things in general about the education of aristocratic women in, in this period of the early Roman Empire. And we know some details in outline sketch about Messalina herself. You as the biographer, how do you put those together in your writing to create a sort of a, a sense of how Messalina's childhood or her adolescence or growing up must have been. I mean, and, and, and I have in mind here that I've sort of written forms of biography in the mid in the Middle Ages where we, we encounter similar problems. Um, yeah. That that the, the the hardest bit of any biography for I guess a pre pre modern subject is this childhood, when very little is recorded and all we have mm-hmm. are the sort of generics is the generic stuff of childhood. How did you in your in writing your first non-fiction book, your first biography. How did you approach that challenge as a writer? Um, well, I think a lot of it is about, I suppose, a, a kind of zooming in and out. So trying to get a an overall sense of um, what is this person's background? Because I think that becomes incredibly important when you're looking at what Messalina is able to do once she's put in the position of power. There, there's no way, I think, that Messalina is very successful for a very long time. Um, in an incredibly cutthroat and difficult political world. And I think that it would have been impossible for her to achieve that success without having, you know, a strong educational background. Um, and so I think it's important that we that we have that kind of grounding sense that this is something that she would have experienced. And then I think it's about um, knowing when to kind of zoom in on those small facts that we do have, all those kind of anecdotal pieces of evidence about maybe other women that can help us feel connected on a personal level to the biographical subject, even in those earlier chapters. Um, I think the other thing that I really wanted to um, explore in those early chapters is the impact that 
watching um, politics uh, in this period would have had particularly on um, an adolescent Marcelina. So in, in Roman culture, girls are not sort of secluded away. Um, they interact with their parents, with their parents' friends. And Marcelina is an adolescent um, right at the end of the reign of the Emperor Tiberius and the beginning of the reign of the Emperor Caligula. And this is a remarkably turbulent time in Roman politics. Um, I mean, I'm sure uh, everyone has kind of uh, this image of Tiberius as this almost archetypal tyrant. And those last years of his reign really are characterized by, I think, a sense of paranoia. There are lots of, um, I suppose, sort of show trials, um, lots of factional infighting. Um, and Messalina would have observed that. She would have known a lot of the people who fell during those sort of Tiberian purges. And I think that it's very important um, to understand the fact that she would have observed that, um, because I think that that, perhaps more than anything else, is a huge education in how court politics is done, but also the consequences of getting court politics wrong. Um, and I think that that has a huge impact on how we see Messalina behave in the early years of her reign. Well, I think you've done an amazing job in the bi in in your biography of um, putting into practice everything that you've just you've just said, both in terms of the 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 formal structure of of writing biography when the facts are uh, necessarily relatively thin, or the specific facts at any rate. And I think you've got this amazing approach to understanding these these years through Messalina's eyes as as a form of education and um, thank you to everyone who's posting questions uh, please all keep them coming we will get to them in about 20 minutes time let's get back to um to charting Messalina's career so as as an adolescent she sees an incredible turbulent time in Rome early Roman imperial politics um and then really not far out of adolescence. Of course, it, it, this depends on when we date, when you date uh, her birth, but, but around either early, mid or late adolescence, she's catapulted to the top of it. Can you give us a, a snapshot of what it's like to be married to Claudius? Who is Claudius? What are the, what are the characteristics of his reign? I think the name Claudius you've, you've alluded to as being famous for I, Claudius, uh, I always think of elephants for some reason. Why, why that is, I don't know. Maybe did he send some elephants to Britain? Yes, yeah, send he some did. elephants to Britain. There we go. Yeah. He's <laughs> the elephant guy, <laughs> not the elephant man. Time. That's a, that's a different thing. Um, give us a snapshot of what's this world that she, when she walks, when she she comes to power or, or proximity to power itself. Yeah, so Claudius, I think, is a is a really fascinating figure in Roman history. Um, when Messalina marries him, she's probably around seventeen or eighteen, and he is almost fifty. Um, and Claudius for much of his life, uh, no, that, that is a, I would say an atypical age gap. Um, most men are, are marrying earlier than that. This is Claudius's uh, fourth marriage, I think. Um, and so it's, but it's also not so out of the ordinary that people would have been completely shocked by it. Um, and this is a marriage that for reasons I'll explain in a minute, makes a lot of kind of political sense for both of the families involved. Um, Claudius, for much of his life, has been totally sidelined by the imperial family. Um, he is a an imperial prince of, I suppose, the first order, really. Um, but he is subject to some sort of um, physical or mental uh, disabilities or illnesses um, 
some modern scholars have kind of tried to work out what it might be. Some people have said potentially a type of cerebral palsy, but it's it's very hard, obviously, to access kind of the truth of what his diagnosis might have been. Um, but it appears to be much more severe uh, during his early childhood and his adolescence. And I think the imperial family are really concerned about the effect that this might have on people's perception of them. They are still trying to get the Roman people used to the idea of being ruled by a, a family rather than by sort of elected magistrates. And so I think the concern is that any sense of like weakness or what they might term as sort of bad blood in the family um, is going to have a really huge and direct political impact on um, the, the Julio-Claudian dynasty as a whole. So Claudius is really hidden away for almost all of his life. He's continually refused. He continually tries to you know, take part in politics, to um, hold political office, and those opportunities are repeatedly refused to him. Uh, that is until his nephew Caligula comes to power. Much of Caligula's family um, had been uh, killed during the reign of Tiberius, and so Claudius is really one of Caligula's only last links to his um, uh, lineage. And so Caligula really um, embarks on a process of promoting Claudius um, during his early reign uh, in order to legitimize his own rule. So he makes Claudius his consul um, as his colleague. Uh, and he also, I think, is um, instrumental in the marriage of Claudius and Messalina uh, because Messalina is a, um, a very uh, sort of well, well-bred uh, imperial princess. And I think Claudius's marriage to Messalina in around 38 AD is a real indicator of this promotion of Claudius. And do we know what their relationship with one another was like? I mean, to what extent can you, can we delve into uh, what this, whether this was a, a meeting of, of anything more than just political partners, dynastic kind of uh, subjects of dynastic arrangement? It's incredibly difficult. I mean, um, it's always almost impossible to to access that sense of like personal relationship in the ancient world. Uh, but I think what we can say is that the ancient sources continually um, refer to Claudius as being very uxorious, as being really obsessed with his wives and particularly with Messalina. Um, there's a slight issue with that theme in that it really plays into this overall um, perception that the sources try and create of Claudius as being a man who is a good man, but who is relatively weak and who is sort of driven along by his wives and his advisors. Um, and I think that this, this continual reference to his love for his wife is perceived by the ancient writers as being a, a sort of indicator of, I suppose, his weakness in some ways. Um, that being said, I think that there are, there are some pieces of evidence that point to them having a, a strong marital and potentially working relationship. So in the earliest years of Claudius's reign, we see Messalina being involved in a number of sort of court intrigues, uh, the removal of a number of political enemies. Um, and these, these intrigues are characterized in the ancient sources as being driven by Messalina's personal jealousies. So it's claimed that she gets rid of an imperial princess called Julia La Villa because she is jealous of her, of her beauty and her sort of attractiveness and her social power. Um, it's claimed that she gets rid of a man named Apius Solanus because uh, he refuses to sleep with her. 
But in reality, I think what we're seeing here um, is Messalina actually uh, sort of working in collusion with Claudius in order to remove potential threats to the regime um, during those sort of very febrile early years of the new regime. Was this sort of typical of an empress at the time? You've, I mean, it, it's sounding like it probably wasn't in the sense that uh, you said that women in, in positions of power are well, really not supposed to occupy positions of power. Uh, and and now it sounds like Messalina is, is in a sort of power partnership with Claudius. What Can we define exactly what was expected of a Roman empress at the time that Messalina came to her position? Yeah, I, I think what's so uh, interesting about Messalina is that when she comes to power, I think what is expected of an empress and what an empress has uh, the right and the ability to do is something which is very unclear and very up in the air. Um, the last empress who lasted any real length of time at the top was Livia, uh, who had been the wife of the Emperor Augustus, who had obviously died in 14 AD. Um, and then she remains powerful for some time as the Emperor Tiberius's mother. But there's been a really long gap um, between Livia and between the accession of Messalina. Uh, Caligula has a number of wives, but none of them really last long enough to make any serious political impact. Um, and so I think Messalina really um, comes into this position, which is not an officially uh, sort of um, defined position. There is no, there is no um, officially defined position of empress in the Roman world. It is simply that you are the wife of the emperor and that as such, you have certain um, accesses to the emperor and also certain sort of responsibilities in terms of your public presentation. Um, so Messalina comes into this role in some ways with a very clean slate. Uh, she's much younger than Livia was. Um, and so she's forced to really create the, the image of what it means to be empress anew in some ways. Um, and we see this in terms of the way that she presents herself to the public. Um, her statues really emphasize her youth, her beauty, her fertility. And we also see it in terms of the ways in which she exerts her power. Um, by the time that Claudius and Messalina come to power, um, court politics has become even more important than it was under Augustus. Uh, it's become centered even more so on the individual figure of the emperor um, and access to the person of the emperor has become even more important. And so the empress as his wife, I think, has new opportunities for the exertion of power. Um, and Messalina really makes the most of that and I think develops those ways um, for, for women to exert power um, in incredibly novel directions and directions that are picked up upon um, and repeated and extended by her successors. And yet, for better or worse, um, the thing we know Messalina for more than anything else is not redefining the uh, the, the sort of scope of the emperor's wife, the, the, no. the political activities uh, that were possible within this role. It is, of course, her um, her scandalous and and I think we can even say bizarre, or certainly in the telling, it becomes bizarre uh, nature of her fall. I mean, I, I will do it this a terrible injustice if I try and summarise it, Anna, but you do it fabulously in, in the book. And I wonder if you could just give us, just take us through this this strange story of, of Messalina's downfall. Yeah, so the main source for Messalina's downfall is Tastus. And Tastus prefaces his um, story of Messalina's uh, fall by saying that his reader might find this 
fabulous and difficult to believe. But the, honestly, this is just what he's heard. This is just what he's been told. And <laughs> this is what I say when I come in from the pub and I've been gone for a long time. Like you're not, like, you genuinely, you're not going to believe this. But go with me. Literally, and and when when you're hearing that from Tastas. I think you know from the off that there, there's potentially an issue with, with the sources here. Um, so what Tastas claims is that Messalina um, kind of develops this mad, out-of-control passion for the most handsome young aristocrat in Rome, uh, a man named Gaius Silius. And uh, they fall in love, they begin an affair, um, and together they plot to marry um, and to overthrow the Emperor Claudius. They wait until Claudius has essentially gone away on a business trip to Ostia, which is incredibly close to Rome. And then they celebrate uh, openly a wedding party. Um, it's this, it, it, and the way that Tacitus describes it is this incredible kind of Bacchic celebration. The wine is literally physically overthrowing, uh, overflowing. Messalina and Silius are lying together on kind of a garlanded marriage couch in front of the great and the good of Rome. Um, and what he claims is that they plan to marry for Silius to adopt Messalina's son um, and then to take take the throne to install Silius as emperor uh, and Messalina's son as his heir. Um, Claudius is told this by his loyal um, advisors, primarily a man named Narcissus, an ex-slave who had once been Messalina's kind of staunchest ally, but had now turned against her. Um, he's told that his wife is currently marrying another man in Rome. Claudius panics, uh, as you might, and he keeps asking, you know, am I still in control of the empire? Am I still emperor? Um, has Gaius taken my throne? Uh, and he immediately is swept back to Rome by his advisors. Uh, Messalina hears that he is coming. Um, her and Silius, and I think this is perhaps the strangest part of the whole story, make no move to overthrow the emperor. They simply split up and try and pretend that nothing has happened. Um, Silius goes to the forum and Messalina goes to try and accost her husband and make her case to him um, on his route into Rome. She appears on the, the, the Via Ostia, the main road into Rome, and she starts to beg her husband for forgiveness and to take her back. Um, and Narcissus essentially prevents her from doing this. Uh, he He removes her and brings the Emperor Claudius into the city. He takes him straight to the house of Silius, um, Messalina's alleged husband, and shows him uh, evidence of their adulteries. He then, now Claudius is sort of riled up, takes Claudius to the camp of the Praetorian Guard, the only soldiers stationed in Rome, and he brings before him a, a succession of men who he claims are Messalina's ex-lovers, um, and each one is slaughtered, uh, by the Praetorians upon um, Claudius's command. Claudius then retires to the uh, palace um, to have dinner. And during dinner, he seems to be sort of softening towards his wife. He starts to remember how much he loves her. The wine is flowing, you know, he kind of wants her back. And Narcissus senses this and sends word to uh, some centurions who are stationed outside the palace to go and find Messalina and kill her. Uh, so Messalina is taken out and 
word is just presented to the emperor that she she's now dead and it's over. This overflowing wine you're talking of has, it seems to me, an awful lot to answer for. Is this... Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a real theme in ancient history. I, it's, I, honestly, I think it's, a, it's an underappreciated theme in the whole of history, people being drunk and doing daft things. Um, where do we start with that bizarre story? Um, I, let's start with, is any of it true? So it's certainly true that Messalina falls in complete disgrace in this period because we can we can literally see the archaeological evidence of it. The Senate decreed that her statues are to be smashed, her inscriptions can be destroyed, and we can see the evidence of that. I mean, we find um, statues, portraits of Messalina that are smashed into four pieces, not just because of archaeological wear and tear, but because someone's taken a hammer to the back of her head. Um, and so we we know that that she certainly was executed and that she was executed in total disgrace. Um, the bigger question is why? Um, and I think the, the justification presented by Tacitus, um, is, is implausible. And I think he rightly senses that it is implausible. And I think that the main, there are two main reasons it's, it's implausible. Firstly, Messalina benefits nothing from this arrangement. Uh, her son is already heir uh, to her husband and her, her kind of strongest position is, is simply remaining as the wife of the emperor Claudius. Um, and the the mother of the future emperor. There's there's nothing that she has to gain. So, from so this whole Tacitus effect. is saying she's madly in love, or Tacitus is saying she's she Tacitus desperately wants saying, more power. Tacitus is saying that she's madly in love, and also that they then hatch this plan, and she is convinced by Silius that this is potentially going to be to her benefit to have him on the throne. Um, I think that that's implausible. She she gains nothing from doing this, and I think the other problem is that. Um, they clearly have no plan for what they're going to do when Claudius returns to the city. There's no sense that they actually try and enact a coup. They simply try and and pretend that nothing has happened. And I think that there is no way that anyone, even in anything approaching their right mind, would publicly marry their lover while their husband, the emperor of the known world and commander of kind of the greatest army of Earth, was pretty close by and then have no plan of what they were going to do next. So I think that that whole thing is implausible. And I think that there's a sort of much simpler explanation for all of this, which is that this is a coup actually against Messalina that is um, planned by, primarily by Narcissus, who is a freedman um, advisor to the emperor and had been Messalina's staunchest ally. Um, in all of her early intrigues, um, we always find Messalina and Narcissus sort of in it together. Um, and I think what's happened is that in the year or so preceding Messalina's fall, she's taken a couple of political risks, um, which she, she's, for example, tried to take out one, and she has successfully taken out one of the most powerful and wealthiest senators in Rome. Um, and she's successful in destroying him. But we hear that there is a point where it looks like it's going to go wrong. And so I think that there is a sense that by the end of 48 AD, Messalina is beginning to appear to her erstwhile allies as something more of a liability and potentially a political loose cannon than she'd been in previous years. And that there is a decision that, you know, she needs to be removed. So this business of the, the you know, my big fat fake wedding... 
Yeah. Uh, is is this? Do, do you believe that this actually happened? Is this some sort of uh, analogy? Is this like what? Is this her sort of forced into a ceremony against her will? No, I I think that it's incredibly difficult to credit the idea that that, that this bigamous wedding actually happened. Um, and I think that that's that's pretty much a consensus among modern scholars. Um, I think that what we're seeing here is. Uh, and it's it's reflected in Tacitus's description of how this wedding takes place. I think that what actually probably happens is that there is a big celebration of the new vintage, um, a kind of Bacchic festival party that Messalina holds in Rome during this period, and that that then becomes twisted um, either immediately by her enemies or in the aftermath of her death into this story of the bigamous wedding. Well... Uh, I think I'm not sure if I'm disappointed or, or pleased. I can't. I, I'm, <laughs> a lot of cognitive dissonance going on. Okay, so from uh, that subject to something completely different, and, and I think you've, you've got an interesting answer to this, which is why I've kept it for last. Do you see any modern comparisons? This is an anonymous question. With how Messalina was treated and how women in power are treated today, is she a Meghan Markle type figure? And to just depend to that, I'd, I'd love you to talk about the whole role and business of history biography in general does it necessarily have to be instructive have to be analogous at all um so i wouldn't say she's a Meghan markle type figure um i would say that uh she that there are parallels in terms of i think society's desire to categorize women um and particularly to use sexuality and sexual behavior to place women into pretty distinct categories and also to kind of delegitimize their success, their authority, things like that. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not sure I would necessarily associate her most with Meghan Markle. In terms of the role of history, it's such an interesting question and it's something I've, I've grappled with a lot when I was writing this. Um, I feel very strongly that history and particularly the classics should not um, have to be relevant to uh, modern society. I think the classics are... Un- important in a lot of ways because they're one of kind of the key building blocks and reference points for all of Western culture and and, and thought. Um, but I think that the desire to make them endlessly relevant to the modern world is actually a very dangerous one. Um, I think that it, it can lead you to uh, not take the historical facts as they are and assess them kind of on their own merits, but to try and um, fit the facts into the service of, of the needs of contemporary society. And I think that that's something that's been done a lot with classics um, over the past centuries because classical, because Rome has always been seen as sort of this golden age of civilization. I think that cultures and political movements have continually tried to um, make Rome and make Roman history kind of serve their own um, ideologies and their own uh, messages. And I think that, that that is always a dangerous thing to do. I think that the history should be allowed as much as is humanly possible to speak for itself, um, even when what it says is, you know, uncomfortable. And I think sometimes the points at which the history tells us something, you know, that feels uncomfortable in a modern context is sometimes the most important parts of that history to examine. Otherwise, we'd all end up writing like Tacitus, wouldn't we? Um, yeah. Anna, it's been such a pleasure listening to you talk about Messalina. Um, and I think that that point you've just made uh, is, a, is a really profound and important one and in some ways lies at the heart of why you've made Messalina such a brilliant book because, as you say, and it doesn't have to be 
uh, relevant. It can be interesting. And, and that's, I'm paraphrasing you, that's better. Um, yeah. So really, I'd just like to thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. Thank you for everyone who's been listening. Thank you for everyone who's asked questions. The book, one more time, I, I highly recommend it. It's still uh, top of my list as book of the year so far. Is Messalina, A Story of Empire, Slander and Adultery. And you can buy it now. In fact, you must buy it now. I implore you, I insist, buy it right now. Buy another copy for all your friends. Yeah. Uh, it's available now from your local bookstore. I'm Dan Jones. You've been watching or listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. If you'd like to listen ad-free, attend some of our live events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com membership. This episode was produced by myself, Connor Boyle, with editing from Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on, and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or tweet us at intelligence2. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.